Kairos family. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Anybody breathing this morning? I trust you are because you're beautiful. Come, let us worship our King. Thank you. 
every song we could ever sing and worthy of all the praise we could ever bring you're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you No. 
Father God, we invite you to glorify yourself in us today. Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place. Would you guide our conversation, we pray. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. All right, you guys, go ahead and grab a seat. Before we dive in, and we have a lot to get through today, and we get to do something together as a family today that we haven't gotten to do in over a year in getting to take communion together, which I am extremely excited about. So um, before we get there, however, I want to let you know about a few things coming up because as we are waking up from COVID and summer is in full swing, we have stuff going on for each of us. So ladies, there's going to be the first women's gathering coming up here in a two weeks on a Saturday from 10 to noon. So if you have two X chromosomes, you are welcome to go to the women's table in the back and sign up for it. Guys, sorry, you don't get the treat. My bad. Um, then, kids, I know that some of you are here, some of you are watching from home. There is a Nerf battle coming up here on August 13th. That's a Friday night. Basically, that's your night. So parents, I'm really sorry. You'll have to drop your kids off with any Nerf guns that they have. And you guys, I don't know, maybe go on a date or something. I don't know. And then finally, for those of you who like fishing or don't like fishing, but just like going on boats, we have a lighthouse family boat that we're going to be going out on. I guess it's like a three-hour tour. Hopefully, it'll only be about three hours, right? Um, it is going to be on Thursday, August 19th. So that's a cup. That's about three weeks from now. It's on a Thursday from noon to 6 p.m. It's on a boat out of Dana Point. If you don't have fishing gear but you would like to fish, it'll be provided for you. If you just want to go on the boat, I took my, my son, his friend, and my father out on the same boat that we're going to be going out on. I took him out just a couple of days ago. We had a great time. My father didn't touch a fishing pole at all, and yet he still had a great time because he just got to be with family, right? And that's what this is. This is the Lighthouse family getting to be together on a boat, uh, slaying some fish in Jesus' name. And Pastor Jeff will be there to help you figure out how to do it if you've never done it before, all right? Although he likes to let them all go, so make sure you don't, he, you don't let him touch your fish when you want to keep it. All right, with that, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 12. We are, are, guys, we're in the end game. It's really interesting. When you look at John, it's 21 chapters, and yet from about chapter 12 on, we are in the final week of Jesus's life. And as we saw last week, Jesus has just done his most powerful miracle. And that's not to downplay uh, turning water into wine. It's not to downplay walking on water, calming storms, or, or, or even giving sight to a blind person or healing somebody who's been crippled since birth. But I would suggest to you that if you saw somebody raise somebody from the dead, particularly somebody whose body has already started to decompose, you would pay attention to and that's what's gone on. Jesus has raised somebody from the dead. People are paying attention. Some people are really excited because they see in Jesus the Messiah that they have been waiting hundreds of years for, God's anointed redeemer of his people. But for others, particularly the Jewish leadership, they see in Jesus a real danger because he threatens their tenuous grip on power in Israel. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into this. So 
there's a lot of people who are talking, and Jesus, after raising Lazarus from the dead, kind of steps off of the stage for a little bit, kind of goes back and spends some time in the wilderness with his disciples, but now we reach the final week of his life. And now we reach the, the Passover, that fateful Passover. And remember, for those of you who, who may not have kind of grown up in the church, the Passover was a really significant time in Israel's, uh, you know, yearly annual festival. For them, it was much like what Easter is for us. It was a time of remembrance, a time of remembering when God had reached into their reality and powerfully redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt. He used 10 plagues to do it at that time. He used a guy named Moses to lead them out of slavery in Egypt, through the wilderness, to the promised land. So that's what they would typically focus on during the Passover festival. But this Passover festival, the people who are arriving in Jerusalem are coming, not just focused on the past, but focused in a large part on the future, on the possibility that here's a guy who's raising people from the dead. Maybe he's our Messiah. What do you think? Is he going to show up? And that's what we find ourselves stepping into as we uh, begin chapter 12. And I'm actually, if, you, if, you're, if you're paying attention on your phone, I'm just going to read the last five verses of chapter 11 to give us a running start. So here we go in chapter 1155. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he going to come to the festival at all? People were excited to see him. They wanted to see what was going to happen. But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Why? We'll talk about that in a little bit. Six days before the Passover, so this is the final week, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. As we talked about last week, Bethany was a city or a little town that was about a mile and a half to two miles outside of Jerusalem. This was Jesus' base of operation whenever he came down to the south to where Jerusalem is. This is where he would stay. He would stay with Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. So here, a dinner was being given in Jesus' honor because Hey, he raised Lazarus from the dead. This is the first time they're getting to hang out with him since he, he did this. This is a big deal. And so people have come from Jerusalem to join in with them and to celebrate along with them. A dinner was being given in Jesus' honor. Martha served because she was the consummate hostess, while Lazarus was amongst those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary, Lazarus' sister, took a pint of pure nard, which was an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I, I looked it up. This particular perfume smells like gardenias, so like those, those really fragrant flowers. This is what the house is filled with. But one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, who would later betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? I mean, it was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You're always going to have the poor among you, but you'll not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews 
found out that Jesus was there and they came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it was written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples didn't understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look at how the whole world has gone after him. This is a moment in Jesus' journey to the cross that we remember every single year on Palm Sunday, right? This is the Sunday before Good Friday and Easter Sunday when Jesus raises from the dead. It's a big deal. However, it's interesting to me that as we read through John's gospel, it's interesting to see the way that Lazarus is being raised from the dead really is the catalyst for this, isn't it? I mean, it's almost like Lazarus's resurrection causes the, the, this, like it brings everything to a head. It lights the wick that is ultimately going to blow up into the final week of Jesus's life, culminating with the cross and the empty tomb. And typically, when we do our Palm Sunday celebration, we have our kids coming down with their palm branches waving and everybody singing Hosanna, and it's really fun. It's a great family day, and we focus a lot on Jesus. But it's interesting as you read John's gospel, because what John does is he actually takes the focus off of Jesus a little bit, and it's almost like as he's telling the story, he begins to pan the camera around the room at all of the people who are around Jesus. And what he's doing is he is trying to help us to see the way that different people respond to this man who has come to redeem God's people. And really what we begin to see is not just what, we're not seeing what Jesus was thinking and feeling and doing. We're seeing what the people thought and felt about Jesus and, and what they did. And in so doing, what we get a picture of is how they worship, but more importantly, what they worship. And this is where we're going to zero in today as a church. We are going to lean into this question of how do the people worship and how does it expose what they worship? So that's what we're going to focus on because I'll be honest, I think one of the big um, uh, come on, Charlie. Oh, it's not. Oh, I, I love it. I, I'm ADHD enough to want to listen in. Any time that you've got somebody reading the Bible with an accent, I feel like the Holy Spirit pays way closer attention to it, right? I'm just saying, if maybe if we go other places, pe people will think we have an accent, but I don't think so. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Totally off topic, right? Um, so, we, one of the biggest casualties of COVID is our worship. It has caused us to turn into very passive worshipers. And by the way, I am not just talking about songs, because that's what we think of when we think of worship, isn't it? When, when you think, when I say the word worship, 
I'm guessing that for the vast majority of us in here, your mind automatically starts thinking about the songs that I sing. And particularly, what kind of songs should I sing? I like these songs better than those songs. And I honestly, I would prefer to have this style of worship over that style of worship. And we get into worship wars that quite often will rip churches apart because there's so many different opinions about it. Right? I really like country worship, but our pastor doesn't like country worship. Dang it! Let's get rid of the pastor so we can worship with country. Same. D, you're not supposed to agree with me. That's one of my elders right there. Come on. Um, so today, here's what I want to do. I want to define our term before we continue. When I'm talking about worship, I am not simply talking about singing songs. That's a portion, but it's a very small portion. What we do, worship is everything that we do because by definition, worship means to ascribe worth to something. Okay, that's the definition of worship, to ascribe worth to something. So when you worship something, you value it so much that you begin to order your life around that thing. That means that when you worship something, you begin to willingly sacrifice other things that you value for this thing that you value more. So let me give you a couple of examples, hypothetically, of things that people might worship. If you worshipped image, the way you look, or being in shape, hypothetically, I know we never think about these things in Southern California, but if you did, then you might begin to sacrifice things like sleep in order to get up early or stay up late to go to the gym. You might also begin to willingly not order certain things off of menus because they're high in saturated fat or salt content or sugar and order other things that have less of those things and less flavor because you value being in shape more than you value enjoying your life, hypothetically speaking. Um, or let's say that it, you could potentially worship success, climbing the corporate ladder. Not that any of you ever have, but if that were to be the case, we might think that people would sacrifice decades of their life, sacrifice time in the evenings, time on weekends, time being present with your family and friends in order to answer every time the phone rang so that you could make that extra sale, so that you could surpass your quota, so that you could get that raise, so you could get that promotion. Are you, are you getting what I'm saying here? Worship means to order your life around whatever you value. And when we worship something, we are willing to sacrifice other valuable things for that. So, you can get a really good idea of what people worship based upon what they are willing to sacrifice for it. And this morning, there's four parties that we, we kind of get access to, four parties that we're going to lean into and look at and say, hey, what did they worship and how did they worship? What is it that they were willing to sacrifice and what were they sacrificing for? That, that shows us what they worship. The first person that we get to look at and kind of ex explore their idea of worship is Mary. Here's this gal who already had relationship with Jesus, right? She was already somebody who, when Jesus would come to town, she made a point of spending time with him. When her sister's running around like a chicken with her head cut off, serving Jesus, Mary is sitting at his feet, learning from him. She valued relationship with him. 
When Jesus raises her brother from the dead, there is no question in Mary's mind that this is the person that she has been waiting for, that God sent, the Redeemer. And so when he shows up, she wants to do nothing more than just show him her gratitude for who he is. And so she does something pretty audacious. She goes into her room and she grabs probably the most expensive thing that she owns. It's a jar of perfume that, that, I mean, Robin, what's the most expensive bottle of doTERRA oil, right? I mean, it it doesn't even compute. This, This perfume was more like an investment than something you would ever think to use because it cost an entire year's wages. And, and let's just say that somebody was paid $12.50 an hour, because we're not quite to the 15 yet, right? That's ta- we're talking $30,000. That's how much in today's economy this might cost. This was the equivalent of a, a, a regular laborer making one denarius a day and then taking all of that to buy one bottle at the end of the year. That is what she pulls out. She breaks the top and she pours it over Jesus' feet. It is an audacious act of of waste, if you will, from some perspectives, but worship from another perspective. But she doesn't stop simply with taking very expensive perfume and pouring it over Jesus' feet. She then lets her hair down and uses her hair to begin wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And to us today, that seems like, oh, wow, that was really a, a beautiful picture of serving him. But we miss out on just how audacious this is. Because in our culture... What a woman does with her hair is really more about style than, you know, social appropriateness. But in that culture, a woman would not leave her home without some sort of a head covering over her. And a woman would never let her hair down in public. Nobody was to see a woman's hair down other than her husband. So the fact that Mary is willing to let her hair down in front of all of these people and use her hair to wipe Jesus' feet is not only a beautiful act of worship, but it was in some ways social suicide. She was basically saying, I don't care what other people think. I want to honor this man who's more than a man, who has been sent by God, and my act of putting my hair down and wiping it with the most expensive thing that I've got is the best way that I can show him that I honor him, and I value him, and I cherish him. What did it cost her to worship Jesus? It cost her something that she could have sold and used the money elsewhere. It could have cost her, it cost her this very valuable item, and it also cost her her social perception of other people around her. It was beautiful, and Jesus recognizes it as a beautiful act of worship, of her finding him to be more worthy than keeping the value of this or keeping her own kind of social perceptions alive, right? But not everybody saw it as a beautiful act of worship. In fact, one of Jesus' own disciples, a guy named Judas Iscariot, we know Judas, right? He's he's the one that's going to betray Jesus in a little bit. Judas looks at this and goes, what are you thinking? Jesus, stop her. Imagine the waste. I mean, you could have taken this bottle and sold it. Imagine how many homeless people you could have fed and housed. Imagine how many people who are hurting and destitute this money could have been used to care for. 
which, let's be honest, that is a fair point that he makes. But John is very quick to show us that the reason that Judas says it is not because Judas cares about the poor. Judas is saying it because he cares about the money, because Judas is a thief. And Judas is the one who is in charge of all of the disciples' money bag. Judas is thinking, if I could have gotten my hands on that money, imagine what I could have done with it. And here's what we learn about Judas. Judas may be following Jesus. Judas Judas might be one of Jesus' disciples, but Judas doesn't care about Jesus. Judas cares about Judas, and Judas cares about what Jesus can do for Judas, and Judas cares about the money and the prestige and the influence that Jesus can afford Judas. And we know this, not only because he speaks up here, not only because John tells us that he's a thief who is willing to allow himself to help himself to the money bags every now and again, but because we know that Judas is following Jesus thinking that Jesus' star is rising and that means his star is going to rise. But within the matter of just a few days, Judas will realize that Jesus is not the kind of Messiah who is going to give him access to power and influence and lots and lots of money. And when Judas realizes that, when Judas realizes that Jesus is running full tilt into a wall called the Sanhedrin and the Jewish religious leaders, and that Jesus is probably going to lose his life, Judas decides to sell out. For the most he can get in that moment, which at that point is 20 pieces of silver. So we know that Judas doesn't care about Jesus so much as he cares about money and and, and getting stuff back. What he can get out of following Jesus. So two individuals, both of whom who would consider themselves disciples of Jesus, but both of whom who show themselves through their actions to have very different focuses very different levels of worship. One is more self-focused. One is more Christ-focused. One of them is willing to worship in some really audacious ways. One is upset about the way that that worship was more wasteful. And let me just say this up front as we're talking about worship. There are times when the Holy Spirit will compel us to do something that does not make sense from a humanistic standpoint. It simply seems ridiculous. There will be times when the Holy Spirit will lay on your heart to do something that from a financial standpoint makes zero sense. I mean, think of the woman, there's there's a, a widow that we read about who had two pennies to her name. And she's in the temple and she puts those two pennies into the offering. All she has to live on And she drops it into the offering. And Jesus points her out and says, now that is somebody who understands worship. Because for her, it's not about what she could have done with the money. It's a declaration of her dependence upon God. It's a recognition that, yes, I need this money. I need way more than this. But my hope is not in this money. It's in the the one that I worship. My hope is in God. And guys, I don't like to talk about money in our church very often. One, because God takes care of us. He continues to take care of us regardless of how you give. But two, and more importantly, because I've seen the abuses that the church has had where it's, it's become more about how, what can we get from you. We're going to talk about those kind of leaders in a minute. But here's, here's the flip side of that. 
I don't like talking about it because I've seen the abuses and I want to avoid that. But in so avoiding those conversations, I have not been leading well. Because the reality is, where our money goes, our heart tends to follow. And it doesn't make sense from a human standpoint to give financially when we live in such an expensive place and you could use that money other ways. It doesn't make sense when you get your paycheck to take the first 10% off of it and give it away when you could obviously figure out other ways to utilize that money. If anything, a, a humanistic perspective would be, hold on, pay your bills, make sure you're not paying any interest on credit card stuff, put some money away for fun, like to go on a trip or to go to the fair, although you're going to spend a lot more money than you want to going there, and it probably, but, but that's beside the point. Yeah, you know, put it away, and then whatever is left at the end of the month, then give that. That would make more sense. But the reason that we are called to give our first fruits is because at the end of the day, that is a declaration of trust in God. And no, it doesn't make sense from a human standpoint. But that's why it is an act of worship. And I want to apologize to you for the ways that I've avoided these conversations on finances because I'm uncomfortable about it. Because I don't want to make you uncomfortable. But the reality is Jesus spent quite a bit of time talking about it because he realized this is a major area of worship that a lot of people try to be resistant in. But that's all I'm going to talk about that for right now. So sometimes the Holy Spirit will compel us to do things that doesn't make sense from a financial standpoint, that seems wasteful and yet is incredibly important for our heart. Other times, the Holy Spirit will compel us to do things that quite honestly make us look ridiculous. From a social standpoint, it's incredibly costly. I think of King David as the Ark of the Covenant is being dragged into Jerusalem after it's been absent for a number of years. And the Ark of the Covenant is this kind of symbol of God's throne on, heaven, on earth. And it's being wheeled into Jerusalem to be placed where the temple is going to be built. And David is dancing before the Ark of the Covenant, celebrating. And his wife later on goes, David, what on earth were you thinking? Did you, you look the fool, man. Here you are dancing and your robes are flying up and all the girls are getting to see the king's undergarments. Come on, man. And David says, you know what? If I looked foolish, it was for God. And I will, look more, I will become un, more undignified than this in my worship of God. Because it's not about performing for other people. It's about honoring my God. It is about valuing Him more than I value the opinions of other people. So you think that I embarrass myself now? You're going to just have to get used to it. Because I'm going to keep embarrassing myself. And there are some of us here, guys that really, really, really want to honor God, but we don't want to do it in a way that draws any attention to ourselves. We don't want to be embarrassed. And so come worship time. Oh, you know, I, I, God never really blessed me with a good voice. So I'm just going to go ahead and I'm just, I'm just going to, yeah, mm -hmm, Jesus, Jesus, you know, I'm, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it quiet because I don't want to inflict my voice on anybody else. Can I just remind you that God doesn't listen to your voice? He listens to your heart. So if you... I would rather you sang way off key, but sang with all of your heart than not sing at all. And some of you, you know, you feel compelled at times to stand up or to kneel down because if you could, you know, you would kneel down, but you wouldn't be able to get back up. Um, you would stand up, but you don't want to draw attention to yourself, which I totally respect, but... 
The reality is it's more about you and your concern about what other people think about you than you allowing your body to lead your heart. A lot of times, our hearts will follow the posture of our body, which is sometimes why I just want to fall down on my face and worship God. I don't care what other people think. And I would encourage you to consider how you worship, because sometimes... The Holy Spirit will compel us to worship in a way that makes us look foolish. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will lay on your heart to go up and say something to somebody. Oh, but I, I, I don't know them. They don't know me. That would be awkward. And what if I'm wrong? What if I'm mishearing the Holy Spirit and what I'm going to say? It has nothing to do with them. I look like an idiot. Sometimes being willing to go up and say it to them anyway is an act of worship. I think, I, I think about my friend Josh. He's a, a financial planner. And some years ago, uh, he was working with a guy who was incredibly wealthy. But this guy kind of paid lip service to Jesus, but his, his dependence was really on his stuff. And Josh, as he was working with this man, the man said, hey, you know, I just bought my wife a car. Uh, we, we've got her other car we've got to figure out what to do with. But, and he continued the conversation. And, and God laid on Josh's heart Remember, financial planner here. His job is to help this man figure out how to make the most of his money. God lays on Josh's heart, you need to tell this man to give his extra car away. And Josh is like, no, I'm not going to say that to him. This guy's going to fire me. I, I need him to, to, to continue to use me so that I can provide for my family. God goes, tell him to give his extra car away. Because in, in, in reality, what Josh realized is this man was like the rich young ruler. He trusted God in word, but indeed he was trusting what he had. And so Josh finally kind of scraped together the courage. He said, hey, listen, I'm not comfortable doing this, but I'm just going to tell you once and then I'll never tell you again. I feel like the Holy Spirit is saying for me to tell you this, you should, that you should give your extra car away. The guy goes, okay. And Josh says, I won't bring it up again. That's all I said. Conversation ends. He goes home. Two months go by. This man calls Josh up and says, hey, listen, I want to tell you something. My wife and I, we're kind of surprised you said that, in, in part because we didn't even own the car. It, it, it was a lease. But we've been praying about it, and we recognize that we have a lot of dependence on our stuff, and it seems ridiculous to do this, but what we've decided to do is we're going to buy this car out of its lease. We're going to give it away. Now, let me ask you, can I um, do this as a tax write-off? And Josh goes, no, you can't sorry, if you're going to do this, do it all the way. And that was the end of it. Now, both of them worshiped God in their obedience. For Josh, it made no sense to give, him, give his client that sort of a lead. For the man who owned the car, it made, or, or was leasing the car, it made no sense to give it away. And yet, both of these individuals worshiped God in their own way. Sometimes obeying God makes us look foolish. Sometimes obeying God doesn't make sense from a human standpoint. And yet, worshiping God is an act of obedience at the end of it. For Mary, she obeyed God. She didn't care how she looked. She didn't care what it cost. She was going to worship Jesus. For Judas, he worshiped money. And so this made no sense whatsoever. But they're not the only ones who are caught up in this, because the people begin to, to hear that Jesus has, has arrived in Bethany, a mile and a half from Jerusalem. They begin to go out to Bethany because they want to see Jesus, but they also want to see Judas. And the leadership catches wind of this. 
And this is verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus. Why? Because on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Now this seems asinine to me. This is ridiculous. The leaders of the people wanting not only to kill a guy who raised the guy from the dead, but to kill the guy who was raised from the dead. Why on earth would they ever do this? This makes no sense. Unless we understand how those chief priests were put into place. You see, Rome, who was kind of was occupying Israel at this time, they were really smart in the way that they led. Whenever they would conquer a place, they would let the people have their faith. You try to take the faith, the people will rebel. But they always were very intentional about replacing the upper echelons of leadership, particularly the chief priests, so that they had a a bought person in a position of power. So these chief priests, they were the ones that Rome had put into place. They owed Rome for their position of power. And so can you begin to see that as Jesus' notoriety is growing, as people are talking about him, as they're going, maybe this is the Messiah, the guy who's going to throw off the heavy hand of Rome and reestablish Israel you know, on the, on the world stage, maybe this is our guy, that the chief priests actually saw this as a bad thing. Not because they weren't concerned for Israel, but more so because they were concerned for what it would cost them. Who did they worship? On the surface, they were the ones who were supposed to be the chief worshipers of God. But really, what they worshipped at the end of the day was their own position of power, their own tenuous grip on control. And since that power was received from Rome, keeping the status quo was imperative, even if it meant silencing the so-called Messiah. He couldn't possibly be the the Messiah. The Messiah's not going to look like that. The Messiah's not going to come from, you know, Podunkville up there in Galilee. Forget it. So we've got to silence him. And if we're going to silence him, we've got to go all the way. We've got to kill Lazarus too because this is just becoming dangerous for Israel. And they totally began to rationalize murder. Now, I would love to tell you that those Jewish leaders were the only bad leaders in all of history within the church who made decisions based upon what it would be- how it would benefit them as opposed to based upon how it would care for the people that were entrusted to their care. But I would be lying. All throughout history, one of the greatest travesties of the church, and that, when I talk about the church, I don't talk about buildings, I'm talking about the people of God. One of the greatest travesties is the way that leaders of the church have misrepresented the heart of God to benefit themselves. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we are warned about false shepherds who will feed off of the flock to benefit, to fatten themselves up, to make themselves more comfortable. And sadly, far too often, leaders use their position of influence to benefit themselves. And I want to apologize because here's the thing I'm recognizing. As we've come through COVID, there are a lot of people who have simply chosen not to come back to church. Part of that is comfort, right? Part of that is it's just easier to watch from home. 
Part of it is wanting to protect yourself. Hey, I don't want to be uh, around a lot of people when I could potentially get sick. And I, I want to be very respectful of any of you who are making that decision. But if you are simply at home because of comfort, I want to challenge you to push past that. Because we need to be together, guys. But that's actually a secondary thing. I was talking about leaders and the way. One of the major reasons why many are not returning to the church or to any church, one of the reasons why many millennials in particular are not coming back to church at all is not because they don't believe in God or don't think that Jesus matters. It's because they've been hurt by the church, and in particular, hurt by church leadership. And because they've been hurt by those people who represented God, they want nothing to do with the structure and the hierarchy and all of the messiness. And I understand that. And if you have been hurt by the church, and if you've been part of the church for any length of time, chances are you've been hurt by the church. You may actually be at this church because you got hurt at another church by another leader. And so, hey, I'm going to come over to this one. Maybe these leaders won't hurt me like they did. May I simply tell you up front, I am a human being. Jeff is a human being. We are imperfect. We are leading to the best of our ability, but we will not lead perfectly. And chances are we will probably hurt some of your hearts in the process of following Jesus as well. And I want to apologize up front. If you are looking to us for your faith, you're placing it in the wrong places. We need to look to Christ together and I am up here not because I have it all together. I am up here because I'm the first one to say I am a sinner desperately in need of grace. And I'm trying to keep my eyes on Jesus and follow him. And I want to invite you to walk with me as we journey together towards Jesus. And I lean heavily on others who hold me up in the way that you guys need to be leaning heavily on others. We're not made to do life alone. But please, do not allow imperfect people to hinder you from coming to God. And I will make this commitment to you. I will hold, and I know Jeff would say the same thing, we hold our position very loosely. If we go from being people who help facilitate you connecting with God and knowing him and instead begin to stand in the way of that, if we become a hindrance to what God wants to do in this church, then I welcome you, Father God, to remove me to remove Jeff, to remove any of our elder leaders? Would you help to make this church a reflection of your heart for this community, using imperfect people as you do? But God, if we are a hindrance, then get us out of the way. That's my commitment to you guys, because I don't ever want to fall into this trap of thinking it's about me and what I can get out of this. So you got the chief priests and the, and, and the leaders of the people who are paying lip service to honoring God, but really they're more concerned with how they benefit. And the people suffered because of it. They actually became a hindrance to recognizing what God was doing. But they are not the last of the people we're going to look at this morning. The last of the people we're going to look at is all of the Jews who showed up in Israel, showed up in Jerusalem to cheer on Jesus as he begins to enter. And we're going to read in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Now we read this, 
whether it be on Palm Sunday or, or, or this morning, and we go, oh, that's, that's really cool. They recognized who Jesus was, and they were honoring him. And I would suggest to you, yes, they rightly recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer. But I would suggest to you that what is actually transpiring on the dusty roads leading into Jerusalem was not that, 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 that the expectations that this crowd carried in with them was actually very misplaced because they expected something of Jesus that he wasn't coming to do. In order to understand this, let me take two minutes to kind of get the context right so that we can understand what's actually happening here. You see, here's the thing. 200 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, Rome wasn't even in the picture at this point, and Israel had been conquered by a different nation the nation of Syria. There was a different king now who was making decisions for the people of Israel. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he had a different approach to the way he led. Instead of letting them keep their faith, he decided he wanted to try to stamp out Judaism altogether. So he outlawed the reading of the Hebrew scriptures. Can't read it at all. If, if you have them, you got to burn them. Secondly, he took a page out, of, or I guess the Romans took a page out of his book because he also replaced the Jewish high priest with a pagan high priest. But this high priest had no interest whatsoever in leading the people and supposedly worshiping the God of Israel. Instead, he worshiped Zeus. And so he took this temple and he began to sacrifice pigs, which are very not kosher, on the altar that was intended to be in honor of, God, of Yahweh and instead was offering pigs in sacrifice to Zeus in the Jewish temple. Can you see how that might irritate some Jewish people? It did. And one guy in particular, a guy named Judas Maccabeus, finally stood up and said, enough! We can't allow this travesty to continue to happen. Even if it costs us our lives, we got to stand up. And so he, he roused a whole bunch of people and they stormed Jerusalem and they went into the temple and they cleansed the temple and they took it back and they took their country back. And the whole time they were doing this and as they began to reestablish Israel in that time, palm branches became their battle flags. They didn't have seamstresses to make them nice banners, so they used palm branches. And they began to use Psalm 118 as their battle psalm, their prayer. And there's one word in particular that pretty much summed up the heart of what Psalm 118 says. It's a Hebrew word, Hosanna. And that word means save us indicating it would be God who was doing the saving, right? So when you hear Hosanna, it was a battle cry, meaning save us, God, save us. Now, with that context, can you begin to understand what's happening as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem and the crowds lining the streets are waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna? Do you see that this is incredibly politically charged? that there is a tremendous amount of nationalistic zeal in that crowd. They are focused on Jesus, but only because Jesus is the one that they think is going to help reestablish Israel. And this, their, their being there and what they're doing is as politically charged as any rally or any protest you have ever seen. It is ranks right up there with all of the protests of last year, January, what happened on January 6th, all of that, all of this 
is politically charged. Jesus was their guy because they believed that Jesus was coming to make Israel great again. And they're behind him. And they're telling him, we're with you. We're willing to bleed with you. Let's go take it to, to the, the palace. Let's go get Herod out of there and take our country back. You're our king. Because God obviously sent you. Which is interesting. Because so long as Jesus is going in the direction they think, they will follow him. They will bleed for him. They will sacrifice for him. But the moment that they recognize that Jesus doesn't go to the temple, I'm sorry, doesn't go to, to Herod's palace and begin to clean it out, but instead begins to focus on the Jews themselves and on their own misplaced, misplaced worship, they very quickly step back and go, wait a minute. No, no, no. We need a conquering king who's going to overthrow Rome with a bloody sword. Not not some sacrificial servant who's going to focus more on our own misplaced worship and, and, and overcome a, a different foe with a bleeding cross, right? With his own blood dripping off the cross. But that's the reality. They expected Jesus to come and overthrow a king and reestablish a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Jesus came to overthrow a very different foe, sin. And the, the effect sin has on all of us, which is death, separation from God. That's what he came to do. And instead of using a bloody sword, he was going to use the cross and his own blood to do it. And when they began to recognize that Jesus didn't, wasn't going to lead in the way they wanted, those cries of Hosanna very quickly changed to cries of crucify him. You see how this begins to happen. It's because they were carrying expectations that were unfulfilled. And so instead of throwing away their faulty expectations, they threw away their Messiah. Now, guys, I want to be really cautious in how I say this, but I will say that over this last year, I have been uncomfortable in the way that I have seen many within the kingdom of God, many within not only this church, but the church in general, begin to wrap up their patriotic fervor for our country of America with their worship of God and their commitment to being a citizen of the kingdom of God. I will say up front, I am incredibly grateful for the country that we live in. I am incredibly grateful for those of you who have fought and bled for this country. I'm grateful for the freedoms it provides us, for the fact that we can gather together openly in worship. And I know that there have been some things that have really scared you along the way that seem to challenge some of those freedoms. But let me remind you that the nation of America is not synonymous with the kingdom of God any more than the nation of Israel is synonymous with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God transcends every nation. Nations rise and fall. Leaders come and go. The kingdom of God, where God's will is carried out, continues even when nations fall. I grieve the state of our union because we feel pretty fractured right now. It's hard, and, and it's felt that way for a long time, but it feels even more so having come through COVID. And rather than like what 9-11 unified us, it has fractured us. And I know that there are a lot of you who feel very strongly about a lot of things. This last year, 
has inserted a whole lot of new things to argue about. Face masks, social distancing, to gather or not to gather, to obey leaders or not to obey leaders. The election, the aftermath of the election, the, the vaccine. I mean, guys, there's so many things that we can argue about. So many things that we can expend our energy fighting over. And in the process, guess what happens? Our commitment to Jesus Christ and the gospel gets buried. And regardless of whether we intend to or not, when people see us, what they see is more political Christians as opposed to followers of Jesus Christ who transcend political parties and who have not placed their faith in any one politician over another. That's all I have to say about that right now. But I've been concerned and I am concerned because there are some of us who have sacrificed our ability to preach the gospel because we've decided to preach a different gospel about a different savior or a different kingdom. And we need to be cautious about that. Here's the point I am getting at today and here's where I want to land the plane. We all worship something. We probably worship many things. That's natural. To be a human means we worship something. Sometimes we worship ourselves and we order life around us. Sometimes we worship other things, things that are secondary. Sometimes we worship God in the best to, uh, to the best of our ability. The question is, what are we worshiping? And this morning I want to invite you to consider what you're worshiping. But in order to do that, Perhaps the best way to begin to discern that is to look at where you are making sacrifices. Remember, to worship something costs you something. So look at where you're making expenditures, and that will give you a good idea of what you're worshiping. So there's a few things that we value in our culture that we can look at. First off, our time, right? Time is money. Time is important. How do you spend your time? Where are you spending your time? What is taking up an inordinate amount of your time and your thought processes? Where are you focused? When you wake up in the morning, where does your mind automatically go? What is the first thing you reach for? Do you reach for your Bible, even if it's on your phone? Or do you reach for something else, like a news app, or your sports app, or your email app? What do you reach for first? That'll give you a good idea of what you value the most. Maybe look at your apps on your phone and the amount of time you spend on each one. What is the app you're on the most? That might give you a good idea. For me, if I were honest, right now the app that I spend the most time on is my, my Kindle app. I've been reading voraciously. That's and I'm, no, it's not theological stuff, right? So, so it's like, it's more, I'm just, it, just kind of self-medicating. I recognize it about myself. It's important to know because then it shows you what you're worshiping. Secondly, where are you spending your, your treasure, your resources, your money? Where does it go? What do you spend it on? Obviously, we all have to pay rent or pay mortgage. We all have to get food, although, you know, you can determine how much you spend on that. But what do you do with the excess? And I would really challenge you, as uncomfortable as I am talking about, I would challenge you to consider what you give to God, do you give to God at all? And if so, how do you do so? Is it the first fruits or is it the dregs? 
because that'll give you a good idea of what it is you worship and how much you value God or don't value him. And that's between you and him. But I would encourage you to consider that. Thirdly, certainly in this season, one of the things that we need to consider is where we spend our voice. We each have one. Some of us are more willing to use it than others. Some of us have use that voice just in conversations one-on-one. Some of us use that voice uh, with, with things that we text to family. Some of us use that voice on social media, for better or for worse. How are you using your voice? What are you using it to fight for? Some of you, in the, in the use of your voice, it has cost you greatly. It's cost you relationships with people. It's caused fissures between you and family members where you no longer even talk to one another. You, come Thanksgiving, you're not, looking in, you're not interested in connecting with them and they're not interested in connecting with you. What has cost you that? What have you been willing to spend your voice on? Again, this is between you and God. It's not mine to tell you how you use your voice. But how we spend it shows us what we value and why we value it. It shows us what we worship. So consider that. I was thinking this morning, and I'm almost finished. I was thinking this morning about ways that I've seen worship play out. I I remember my brother Joe when he um, was just kind of finishing up college he was trying to kind of break into modeling and acting and stuff and he's he's brother from another mother right far better looking than me um he's trying to break into modeling and he realized one day oh crud i've really put an inordinate amount of energy and time into thinking about how i look and how people perceive me i i recognize that i'm worshiping other people's opinions of me And although this doesn't make sense from a human standpoint, although this seems like a complete waste, Joe's response to that was to go get the hair clippers and to shave his head. I know, silly, huh? Except for him, it was a beautiful act of worship. It was an act of declaring to God, others, but mainly to himself, this doesn't define me. This isn't who I am. Similarly, when I was sophomore year in college and I had gone to college to become an attorney like my dad because I was trying to earn my father's approval and all that fun stuff, just like, you know, how kids typically do. Um, I was sure I was going to be an attorney. And yet, as I started working at his law firm, I realized, I don't want to do this. And so I started telling other people, I don't think I'm going to be an attorney. But I never admitted it to myself because I'd wrapped my entire identity around being an attorney just like my dad. And it wasn't until I went to a men's retreat Saturday night as we were just kind of spending some time sitting with God that I finally laid down this expectation of who I was or who I was going to become and I admitted to God but mainly I admitted to myself God I feel like you're not calling me to be an attorney and I'm willing to let it go guys it was scary when you lay down the kernel of your identity It was terrifying, and yet it was incredibly freeing. And I will tell you that the next six months were radically changed. I was a different person when I came back from that retreat because I had been willing to worship God with the most valuable thing I had, which at that time, for a college student, your identity is all you have. And I laid it down. There are some of you right now that your act of worship 
is looking at, w- at the things that you run to when you feel overwhelmed and you just need to anesthetize yourself, whether that be books or alcohol or tobacco or pornography or whatever it is for you, food, exercise, television. Looking at that and saying, God, is this something that is helping or hindering me? And if he asks you to, would you be willing to lay it down? Sometimes it's taking a device and lobotomizing it so that you can't access certain things. Sometimes it's getting rid of it altogether. Sometimes it's taking that expensive bottle that you just bought and pouring it down the drain as an act of worship. That's as beautiful to him as as a $30,000 bottle of perfume being poured on his feet. The invitation this morning is not for me to tell you how to worship. It's to remind you that you are a worshiper and then to invite you to consider how you're worshiping and who you're worshiping. And our response this morning is that we are going to remember the greatest act of worship ever done. When Jesus, God in human flesh, willingly took on our human frailty, and sacrificed himself as an act of love for us, but as an act of worship to the Father, as a way of saying, you are worthy of everything, so I'm willing to do this, even though I don't want to do this. And so I'm going to invite our, our we got, I got Jeff and, and Jen in the back, and I've got a couple of our elders who are going to come up here and get ready. Guys, we're, we are, I recognize that we're not out of the woods of COVID, and so it's been a long time since we've done this, and we're going to make a few adjustments to how we do it to to kind of minimize any sort of possible cross-contamination. But the reality is, even doing this is an act of worship. We need this. We need to remember, and not just remember separately, remember together how good our God is and how much He loves us. So we're going to go into a time of communion. Dee and Connie, I'm going to have you guys come over here. Um... Tom and Harry, if you guys will come over here. And and in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come up and get the elements. They're going to serve you the bread with some tongs. You guys will grab one of the, the cups, and then I'm going to invite you to bring it back to your chair with you. We are going to take this together for the first time in about a year and a half. It's significant. I know that for those of you at home right now, I know that I would love to be able to do this with you, and I'm going to let you know we are going to start making this a, a habit the, the last Sunday of every month. So, you know, come the end of August, I hope that you will be able to do it with us. But right now, the beauty of, of the Holy Spirit is that even if you take it at home, we are doing it as an act together. So if you want to go run and grab some elements at home, or if you just want to do this after we're finished, I'm going to invite you uh, to join us in remembering the greatest act of love and the greatest act of worship in history. So guys, I'm going to invite you, as you feel led, there's a table in the back and there's two up front, to come up and grab the elements and then come back and sit down and then we will spend some time taking this together.
Um, on the night that Jesus was arrested, the night before he would pay the ultimate price, he, in the midst of a meal, took a couple of the elements and reframed them because it, our God recognizes that we need tangible symbols to remind us in the same way that I need a symbol on my finger to remind myself and others I don't belong to myself. This doesn't make me any more married than if I didn't have it on it. This is just a tangible reminder that I am to myself and to others. Hi, Diagani. You guys can go sit down, or you, or you, you can take the whole thing. These are hungry. They want a lot of communion. Oh, I, I understand. But anyway, so Jesus decided to give the most tangible reminder that he could to his disciples and to us. So he took the bread. He said, this bread symbolizes my body that I am giving for you. And every time that you eat the bread, remember the way that I am giving my life in obedience to the Father, because that's what worship is. Worship is an act of obedience. It is an act of love for you. So let's take this in remembrance of his sacrifice. And then he took a cup, one of the many cups that they would drink during the Passover feast. And he said, this cup symbolizes my blood. The people might want me to spill the blood of our Roman occupiers, but no, the way that I am going to overcome our foe is by my own blood. And this blood cleanses us and restores us back into relationship with the Father. This is the blood of the new covenant of grace. We drink this as a reminder that we don't have to earn God's love. It is freely given to us. Let's take this in remembrance of Him. And Father God, we come before you as a people who worship a lot of things, who get distracted by a lot of things, who get worried about a lot of things. Father, you are the only one who is worthy of our worship. Jesus, you are the image of the invisible God. We choose to follow you as our Lord and our Savior. Holy Spirit, we invite you to clean house, to shape us in the image of our Heavenly Father so that as, as we interact with others, we would reflect His heart in a way that doesn't drive people away, but rather draws them to Him. Not because we can save anybody, we can't, but because He is the only one who can. May we live out our faith in such a way that people are drawn to Him. And may we worship whole with our whole hearts even now as we go into this this time one song of worship may we worship with all of our being jesus in your holy name amen let's worship together when i survey the
for us this morning. The cross is a tangible reminder to us that life is found in death. When we die to ourselves, when we die to the things that that make us feel better, that are our own little consolations, we actually find the life that is truly life. And now as we go, know that you don't have to do a single thing to earn God's love. You've got it. The cross reminds us of that. Communion reminds us. So why do anything as an act of worship? Everything you do is a declaration of what you worship. Go and honor our God and worship Him through the way you love others, through the way that you interact with others, through the way you spend your time, your treasures, your tongue. Will be the church. Have a wonderful week. If you guys have prayer requests, you can drop them in the back. If you guys have um, the offering, you can drop it in the back. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.